That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Mamma mia. Here I go again. My, my. How can I resist ya? Mamma mia. Does it show again? My, my. Hello, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, the sequel to the 2008 ABBA jukebox musical. Joining me in the studio in New York to talk about Mamma Mia is June Thomas. June, how are you? I'm very well. I can't believe that 10 years have passed since that first one. When I saw that date, I didn't think that was even possible. I know. If I can just briefly get out the, the, the tiny violin of our, of our friendship, <laughs> I feel like seeing this movie with you is one of the first things I remember doing with you socially, uh-huh, like uh-huh. when I knew you as a colleague, but I didn't necessarily like have you over for Thanksgiving right, and we right, know each right. other's pets, etc. Right, right. And I sort of feel like we owe some of it to Mamma Mia. And I actually remember sitting next to you during the movie thinking, I wonder if June is liking this as much as me. <laughs> and of course, afterwards, I found out that we were both completely, completely loving it. Exactly. So if you want to hear us talk 10 years ago about the first Mamma Mia, we did spoil that back in the day, didn't we? We sure did. And uh, and now here we go again. <laughs> you know, I, what I almost want to say, Dana, is the history book on the shelf <laughs> is finally repeating itself. <laughs> I think anytime Jermaine Abba lyrics come up in this conversation, they need to be sung. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm so there. So I didn't see it with you this time. We no. saw it two separate times. Um, in, in different cities. Where'd you see it? I saw it in D.C. I was in D.C. last week. And what did you think? I loved it. I mean, actually, in some ways, it's a better movie. You get Les Meryl Street, which is always a demerit. Uh, but, the, I mean... And I'm not going to say that this movie should ever be judged by how much sense it makes, because that is so not the point. But the the shoehorn story actually was a little bit more coherent than the original, I think. But it doesn't matter one bit. You know, it's just like beautiful actors and many older actors, which I also like as an older person, uh, singing ABBA songs, some of which were... Uh, pretty forgettable, but many of which were the greats. Yeah, we'll get into that. They definitely mm. had to dig deeper into the song catalog this they time, and they, they were not afraid of a reprise every now and Thank then. God. <laughs> Thank God. Um, and this time the film is directed not by Phyllida Lloyd, who did the first one, but by Al Parker, who is a writer and director I, I hadn't heard of before. The movie that he's made that I'm the most familiar with is The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, so we know he's already done a little bit of you know, golden years filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's married to Tanya Newton. Wow. <laughs> nice. But I do want to talk a little bit before we talk about this one specifically about the appeal of the jukebox musical and in particular this um, this particular presentation of, of ABBA. Because I sort of feel like now I just know about these Mamma Mia movies that there are the people who will groove to them and the people who just don't yeah. even want to know that they exist. Yeah. And there's not really any point. I mean, what does that remind you of? There's no point in trying <laughs> to persuade the other side, right? Exactly. And what do you think, what is that dividing line? I'm not sure if it's about the concept or about your response to the music, because I have friends who are so into theater, like when there's nothing that they haven't seen, they'll go see a high school performance. Like that that level of commitment to going to live theater as many nights of the week as they can, who 
The only exception is Mamma Mia, which they detest with their body and souls. And I think that having seen it in the theatre and, yeah, it's, you know, it makes no sense. But the songs are great and people are up and dancing in the aisles and singing along. And and it's a, it's just so much fun. Like, these are incredibly catchy songs. And if you don't like the songs, there's, yeah, there's nothing you can do. There's There's no way to persuade someone to spend their time listening to it going to it, doing anything with it. They just don't want anything to do with it. Um, You know, these kinds of shows are not often the most creative or the most like, you know, the best storylines. It's purely about the songs. And yeah, like I say, if you don't like them, you'll never like them. But if you do like them, then what could possibly be better? Yeah, well, the jury-rigged nature of the story is, to me, part of the joy yes. of these movies. I haven't yes. seen the musical on stage. It is, by the way, I learned in researching for this podcast, the longest-running musical in Broadway history, or just the longest-running jukebox musical in Broadway I think it history. must be jukebox musical because... Um, oh, the Fantastics yeah. would oh, be the, right? Well, actually, no, it's the Phantom of the Opera. Oh, wow. Yeah. Your theater history is far more <laughs> boned up than mine. Um, yeah, I've never seen it on stage. I can imagine it working really well on stage, but... Verisimilitude and sort of depth of character are not what you go to a jukebox musical for. No. And in some like the thing with this is you really have to treat it as camp. You know, what what however daft are they, how daft are they gonna make it is the fun. And if you just are not in the mood for that or you're just not there for that, forget it. Right. Well, then there are people who don't like musicals at all. Yeah. And, of course, they're not going to go for this because it's the most basic form of It's the Uggs of musicals, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. But to me, okay, the joy of the musical, and I'm sure that in you know dramaturgical um, theory there's a word for this, but the joy of any musical is that moment of transition, the moment that a conversation yes. turns into a song, yes. right? Or a, a just a scratching your chin, thinking about something, and suddenly you're bursting into song, that transition. Yeah. And that transition, if you can never believe it, if you just simply say, well, people don't burst into song and all know the words and the dance moves, is is going to be the, the bridge that stops you, right? Yeah. Or the dam that stops you. Yeah. But if you enjoy that transition at its most artificial, then you'll love these Mamma Mia movies because there's such conviction with which this cast suddenly moves into the world of singing these songs, which often have very little to do with the character's predicament. Absolutely not. And there was also an additional uh, joy in this one particularly, like maybe just because I was extra prepped for how it, how they work, that you're kind of wondering how are they going to find an excuse to sing this song? Or you know that you can tell that they're setting something up. Like, for example, let's, let's talk specifics. In this particular Mamma Mia movie, Cher shows up and she, you know that she's going to have a song. I mean, why else hire Cher? Of course she's going to sing. But what's it going to be? And all through the movie, Andy Garcia has been around. We haven't heard his first name. They keep calling We only him. know him as Señor Cienfuegos. Exactly. And you're like, okay, what's this going to be? And then, you know, and so certainly for me, I was a little bit, as much as I was focusing on, you know, the deep, complicated plot that was happening in front of me, I'm also like in the back of my mind thinking, but how? But what? And then, sure enough, as soon as the music for Fernando started, you're like, oh, he's Fernando Cienfuegos. And that was just amazing. That was <laughs> if I may like brag little, of yeah. my of my campy cred, I knew it was going to be Fernando the minute <laughs> yeah. he was introduced as Señor Cienfuegos. <laughs> exactly. um, but OK, so let's get to where we are at the beginning of Mamma Mia 2, assuming that people have some basic knowledge of the first movie, right? Yes. We're on the same Greek island, the fictional island of Kalikari, mm. that the first one took place. We don't know how much time has passed since the last one, which is interesting and important because 
Big spoiler, which I don't think the trailer gives away. No. Meryl Streep is dead, right? right Her character right. is Donna. dead. Donna, who is the innkeeper who founded the inn where everything takes place. And the fact that we don't know how much time has passed, to me, I'd, I'm sure it was a deliberate choice, but it's disorienting to the viewer because we don't know, like, did they just start mourning? Right. How long have they been in mourning? What did she die of? Was yeah, it a exactly. long process? I yeah. mean, we don't even know how long Amanda Seyfried's character, Sophie, has been married. The first movie centered on her wedding. And yeah, and, because she's she's... We learn that she's kind of, what do you call it, like reopening, just relaunching the hotel and restaurant that bears Donna's name. But that implies that for some period of time, the hotel was closed. Exactly. I, don't, I would like to know about all of that because there's this running joke as well that, that one of the characters, Julie Walters' character, Rosie, cries whenever Donna's right. name is mentioned, right. right? And then later in the movie, she bonds with Bill, played by Stellan yeah. Skarsgård, because he too begins to weep whenever he thinks about Donna. But... I would assume that a decent mourning period has passed or her own daughter would be crying every time her well, name was mentioned. Well, the funny thing is that I did actually see on IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, um, it says that five years have passed. But there's no indication of that in the movie whatsoever. I'm I'm fairly confident. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's like a weird, vague sense of free-floating mourning. I have to just, as, as a, just as a, a, a Brit interlude, say that for me, the Julie Walters mourning, I read that as her mourning her first great comedy partner, Victoria Wood, who actually died a couple of years ago at this oh. point. But I, I, you know, for me, that was a very sentimental. I was projecting onto her acting mourning, right, real mourning. Right, because for a Brit, you think of them as a team the way, right, right? the way yeah. you would think of um, Dudley Moore and Peter Brooks as right. a team or Malcolm something. Right, Malcolm and Wise, yeah, yeah. So even though I think we both bounced out of this this movie feeling great, it doesn't start off with the best song or the best impression. And in fact, in the first scene, I was afraid that I was really not going to like Lily James, who plays the younger Donna. She's Ditto. essentially the protagonist of the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, you already go in going, well, she's not Meryl. Who's Meryl, right? right. But could they at least maybe cast maybe Mamie Gummer, you know, right. Meryl's daughter, <laughs> who I don't know if she can sing or not. But I ended up loving Lily James by the yeah. end. But wh why was the beginning such a disappointment? It was a disappointment because, A, the song, I'm not an ABBAologist by any means. Like, when they were big, I actually was a hater because I was a rockist snob at that point. And I just thought, oh, these catchy pop tunes, what nonsense. Now, of course, I can't remember a single one of those songs that I was so fond of. And I can hum every song on ABBA Gold. But it, the first song, which is, I believe, called I Kissed a Teacher, is is not a good song and it really felt out of mood with right. the like it, it was a weird like almost like a you know well kissed a teacher like that's kind of icky stuff yeah and, and instead of making it literal they sort of made it metaphorical like what she was saying was i'm sort of the the saucy oxford grad or right. something like yeah, that well and that was the other thing that we learned that uh, donna and her two friends from donna and the dynamos uh all graduated from Oxford, which I don't believe was established in the first movie. I mean, <laughs> I didn't really think it was Donna M.A. Oxon, which now I know it is, you know, and that just seemed a weird time. Like, what's going on? You know, so I was thrown out of, of the mood. But. I wonder if their parents were disappointed what they did with their degrees. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> 
but things pick up very soon. So so the structure of this movie, we should say, is um, is in two timelines where we're yeah. cutting back and forth between the present day with Amanda Seyfried Sophie trying to reopen the inn and having back all the oldies but goodies from the first movie for a big celebration and the fateful summer of Donna. We don't know what year it was, although right. the fact that there are hippies involved seems like yeah. it was maybe the 70s. I'm not sure. 67. Which would make the movie be taking place during the 90s. Anyway, (laughs) let's let's not try to actually make sense of it. But but visiting Donna's old summer, the summer that is sung about many times in the first Mamma Mia when she was impregnated by one of three men. Right. Tom, Dick or Harry. I mean, Bill, (laughs) Harry or whatever the other one's called. Sam. (laughs) Sam, yes. So we we get to go and revisit uh, all of those experiences yeah. um, with the the appropriate songs and with, as Glenn Weldon said in his beautiful review of Mamma Mia 2, which, June, you pointed me to, <laughs> we have now cast, quote, three wand twinks, unquote, <laughs> in, in place of the younger selves of Colin Firth, Pierce Brosnan, and Stellan Skarsgård. Right. And so I, what did you think of those guys, the three wand twinks? Well, I mean, I guess the question, you know, again, like we're in this weird netherworld where things don't absolutely makes sense but um i do love the guy who plays i I can't really say their name i I have to use the actor names the guy who plays young colin firth i love that actor from a role that he's played on television in britain w1a which is a show about the bbc and it's a very mannered role but it's very very funny and lovable and kind of a, a guy that you feel sorry for um and which is but he always kind of comes out good like he's a loser who always wins kind of thing and so I have a I just had a kind of a a sympathy and a little bit of a bond with him the other two I didn't have any connection with so I was just kind of comparing them comparing them with the characters they grew up to be and um, the young Bill uh, who of course is supposed to be Swedish he did remind me of a young Bjorn Borg uh, which I guess is apparent uh, or I guess is appropriate Um, but I don't know that like First of all, apparently these uh, this character, all of the characters changed their singing voice by the time they grew up. Like um, <laughs> they all had a, some sort of a vocal tragedy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Although Hugh Skinner doesn't have the best voice, um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I find them all quite likable. What about you? Oh yeah, I mean, I agree that Hugh Skinner, who plays the young Harry, was my favorite, and that is also because well, he gets one of the best numbers in the movie. I don't know if you agree with me, but of the numbers that are not a reprise of something from the first movie, I think Waterloo is the yeah. best one. For yeah. one thing, it's a fantastic ABBA song. Yes, but also the the interpretation in the movie is strangely literal. So right. Sophie and young Harry are dining in a French restaurant because, of course, it was in Paris of that course. they had their last summer, as we know from Colin first song in the first movie, and. Then they start singing about Waterloo, but they literalize the Napoleon metaphor. Right, so they're right. they're repurposing a tablecloth into a Napoleon cape and doing all of these crazy antics. And somehow the song, and of course the wait staff is all bursting into song and dance. Baguettes and, are flourished. <laughs> and the whole thing just works wonderfully well. I love that production. But I was also going to say that Hugh Skinner of the three Wan Twinks gets the most to do because his character has a real backstory, right? We know that he's going to come out right. at, in his middle age at the end of the, the first movie. So we're assuming that this is back in the day when he was in the closet, maybe even to himself. And yet when he's having this, you know, wide-eyed, exciting affair with this young woman he met. So that gives him, I mean, for the Mamma Mia-verse, that's kind of some complexity to work with. Right. And it's, there is a level of complication because you can't, you know, he he tells her he's a very I mean, not that he's telling her, and then it's a lie, but we know because of our deep Mamma Mia knowledge <laughs> that there may be something else going on. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's nuanced 
stuff. Absolutely, layers feel, upon layers. I feel the need to say, I mean, there have been many jokes, including in that great Glenn Weldon review about sort of the paucity of, of depth in the Mamma Mia verse. But as somebody who's watched the first Mamma Mia at this point countless times with Amazing. my daughter, because I have a kid who was, I guess, five when she first watched it and is now 12 and still loves Mamma Mia and will whip it out from time <laughs> to time and watch it. So I kind of do feel like I know these characters so well that yeah. I know their backstories. It doesn't really matter that there are things that don't match up. Yeah. For example, that Cher's character is said to be dead in the first movie. <laughs> 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 it really exactly. there's there's something about living with these characters for a long time and really any character played by Meryl Streep, even in a not very deeply scripted movie that does have some resonance to it. Right. I right. mean, if only just revisiting these people that we knew 10 years ago in this in this fictional world. So I kind of did enjoy imagining my way into the canon and thinking like, well, who does Sky wish was her father? And, you know, right. sort of trying to plot out the psychology of, of different characters. Well, I haven't watched the movie since we saw it, uh, you know, 10 years ago. But I also just love the fact that now two movies have been made without judgment about a woman trying to figure out which of the three men she slept with in a very, you know, basically over the course of a week or right. something like that, fathered her child and at the same time it not mattering because they're all the now adult child's fathers. I mean, there's something very radical and progressive about it that even if you just treat it, you know, just semi-seriously, is actually really cool. It's very sex positive. And yeah, this movie absolutely. maybe even more so than the first one. Yeah. There is a moment in the first one. I mean, she says it lovingly, but there's a moment when Meryl Streep's character calls herself a slut. Remember, she says, I was such a little slut. <laughs> and I remember watching that with my daughter when she was about five and thinking, I hope she doesn't ask what <laughs> slut means. I think by now she's figured it out on her own. But this movie doesn't even have that level of kind of mild self-deprecation. There's just no. a total affirmation that, you know, she had a, a crazy summer. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like it was really fun and these were nice guys. And it was, you know, there was there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing. I will say that I'm a little bit disappointed that we didn't get more Christine Baranski and more Julie Walters singing in this movie, yeah. because most of the time when we hear Donna and the Dynamos, right, the, the group yeah. that Donna was in in her youth, we see the younger versions of them. So Lily James and then her two backup singers. Rosie, the young Rosie being played by Alexa Davies, and Tanya, the young Tanya being played by Jessica Keenan Wynn. And all those actresses are, are great. They can actually sing. Don right. and the Dynamos are very fun to watch, even when they're singing subpar ABBA songs. But there's no Christine Baranski solo on the lines of Does Your Mother Know in the first right. movie, where she right. can really bust out not just her singing, but her dancing chops. I mean, Christine Baranski is someone who must be 65 or so. Yeah, I, think I looked it up yesterday. Now. She's 66, according to and, uh, and she has amazing legs. She's an incredible dancer. She does a really high kick in one scene. <laughs> but other than that, she doesn't get that much of a chance to really bust out. And I was a bit disappointed about that. Yeah, and it was interesting to me that those particular actors, the young versions of the Dynamos, clearly were cast for their appearance. I mean, the young actresses do look like young versions of the older actresses in a way that wasn't so much true of the men, of the potential fathers. Uh, and that just seemed like a, I guess, because they are doing more numbers together. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter why, but somehow that a little bit got in my head. Um, and yeah, I, I also wanted more of like the real actors or the known actors and people I have, you know, a fondness for and a, 
uh, a connection with. And who have real performing chops. Yes. I mean, you know, this is a, a jukebox musical in which it's enjoyable to see somebody kind of karaoke along when they can't really sing. I personally love that kind of thing, just watching somebody do their best in a, a field that's not theirs. Why don't but you just say Baranski, his name? Just it, say Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> Oh, but let's get to let's get to Pierce. Poor, poor Sam. Sam was so maligned for his horrible singing of SOS in the first movie. <laughs> it is one of the more painful moments. When my daughter and I watch it, she likes to fast forward through <laughs> SOS. Um, and she, but she sometimes she'll watch just to make fun of Pierce Brosnan singing. Uh, but he so puts himself into it that the fact that he came back after the drubbing right. he took in the first one just right. really made me love him all the more. And they're very gentle with him here because they have him do a tiny little reprise of SOS while staring mournfully at three portraits of Donna propped <laughs> up on chairs. Right. It's like it's her wake or something. <laughs> and, uh, and he only sort of talks things. It yeah. And he doesn't really, sings it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's maybe like a fifth of the song or yeah. something like yeah. that. So that was, that was merciful toward him. <laughs> it was, it was. <laughs> and the others, the other older gentlemen don't sing at all, do they? Other, other than in full ensemble, um, you know, dancing queen and that kind of thing, right? They yeah, don't have solo I, I think songs. that's right. I don't think they do. And Stellan Skarsgård never did, right? I think he oh. always just sort of blundered, blundered along with whatever everybody else was doing. I didn't notice that. So um. again, I don't want to spend too much time on the plot, just because, even though this is a spoiler special, but the it just doesn't bear too much staring at. But <laughs> People dance on an island. People dance on an island. People go to an island. People dance on an island. Um, but in the past, past Donna, young Donna, finds herself fresh. I mean, literally weeks, apparently, from after graduating from Oxford. She decides she wants to stay on an island that seems very small, popula- has a very small population, a Greek island, and essentially do karaoke in a bar. <laughs> I mean, that really does seem to be her life choice, which is fine. No judgments. Um, but she, so what happens? Um, all right. Yeah. Yeah. So then however many mysterious number of years later, she's dead. Her daughter, Sophie, is going to reopen this bar that's now named for Donna. And there's a terrible storm and things get sort of ripped apart by the Can I just by the climate. jump in and yes. say that's a very funny plot obstacle? Just like, we need something bad to happen. It can't all be sunny singing on island. Exactly. Weather. Weather, exactly. The weather means that for some reason, all of these very high-end guests and members of the journalistic profession now cannot come at all, ever. <laughs> because Because the launch date is missed Nobody the at all can come. The opening was going to be like Davos, and exactly. now it's fucked. <laughs> exactly. Yes, Davos is off this year. So the older, so now we're in, we're in, well, not current times, but we're in a more modern era. Um, and so the dads who were feeling bad because they weren't going to make it, they've all independently decided they are going to come, and they end up on a boat, and they're like going to go to the relaunch, and so the boat explodes with the the song Dancing Queen because you know I've forgotten Dancing Queen how does it go um you can sing you can dance yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly you can dance, you can sing, having the time of your life. I mean, what else would you do? The song itself is actually an affirmation of the jukebox musical, right? It really it's like, is. You can do it. Yeah, you exactly. are the dancing queen. My dad's got a barn. But aren't the dudes already on the island when Dancing Queen happens? No. So um, Pierce Brosnan is, but uh, Stellan and Colin 
they were at home and then they did realize at the last minute that they need to uh, skip their responsibilities. So Colin comes from Japan and Skellen comes from Stockholm. Right. There's, a, there's a, an unfortunate fat suit joke with his twin oh, brother. Yeah, I buried that in my Yeah, exactly. With let's forget, let's pretend that never happened. Uh, and so they're kind of latecomers. They were going to miss the big opening, but because of the terrible, you know, one storm and it's off, now they have a second chance. So they end up on a boat with the guy who they originally. I mean, like there's, there's a guy, the 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 guy who was young the first time around. That just is too complicated to explain <laughs> and not really relevant. But they end up kind of bringing every, all the sad people from the like the port on the other side of the water from the island. So I guess on the mainland to the island for a big party. And instead of being fancy people. It's going to be ordinary people. But it's all the better because they know all the words to the songs. And you're not sure the fancy people would have. Exactly. It would have been a terrible jukebox musical. I mean, except for the storm that hits the island, there really isn't a lot of conflict in this movie, is there? Is there anything else that sort of gums up the work? I mean, just mourning, I guess. Just mourning for for Donna. But also there's that, um, like, uh, Sky and Sophie have their one fight. Uh, and he's going to stay in London. Maybe he's going to leave her. And then she realizes she's preg. And so we have a little bit of a reprise because, oh, my goodness, that's the very same thing happened to Donna. And that's why she stayed, because she realized that she had been impregnated by one of the three men that she slept with over the course of a week. Except, unfortunately, Sophie didn't have quite as fun a time (laughs) during her last ovulation cycle. Exactly. Exactly. So everybody ends up on the island. As I, as I say in my review, this is sort of like a poorly planned family reunion, right? <laughs> yes, it's like the right. most important people don't get there until the last minute. Exactly. Um, but so let's talk about Cher, who literally yes. gets airlifted into the proceedings. Precisely. Even though apparently, you know, like this is another, at the beginning in the preamble, we see Sophie sending out invitations for this massive bash. And she has one for her grandmother. And then she's like, no, she's not going to come. So she rips it up because I always rip up envelopes when I put stamps on them. That was um, like for a good five minutes, I was worrying about that wasted stamp. So anyway. She, and it's it's an airmail stamp for yeah, God's no, sake. Come on. Those Greek stamps, you know, they're not. Uh, um, it just is not a good sign of how well she's budgeting for that restaurant <laughs> is all I'll say. Um, so but apparently her husband or her man, Sky, he invites grandma anyway uh, and we've also been established from that first scene in the Oxford graduation where Donna's mother didn't show up that she is a bit of a showflake. And she was, I, I guess, a big pop star, right? Which is something yes. that is just very briefly <laughs> yes. established in this movie. Like she seems to be at the level of fame of actual share. Right. Which is another funny thing because, you know, they didn't disguise the fact that two of the three friends who went to Oxford appear to have American accents. Um, so anyway, so but uh, clearly it's that you know, Donna must have grown up all over the world with her singing, traveling grandmother, uh, mother. Well, so, the, with my ability to project depth into the Mamma <laughs> Mia verse, I imagined this whole childhood where it makes a lot of sense, right? It's this kind of matriarch, this kind of uh, hereditary matriarchy where Absolutely. I picture that that Donna was a, was a daughter being brought up by a single mother, just mm-hmm. as she brought up a single mm-hmm. daughter, right? And that her mother, unlike her, was very glamorous, always on tour. Maybe she spent a lot of time with some other caretaker or relative, right? Yeah. Because her mother was off being Cher. 
And that that's precisely why she, when she had her baby on Calicari, decided, no, I'm going to be the earth mother who just wears overalls and hangs out with my daughter, right? That her parenting style was essentially a reaction against being parented by Cher. Absolutely. And I know people who grew up traveling all over the world and, you know, moved every couple of years. And they often tend to be people who then become very... Um, rooted stay at home, rooted. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that makes that's a that's yet another deep profundity of the Mamma Mia. <laughs> but sure, and it also puts Don and the Dynamos into perspective because think about having a little group like Don and the Dynamos that performed at, yeah. at, at karaoke bars right. on Greek islands when your mother is share level pop star, exactly, right? Yeah. So maybe there's like an inferiority complex there, mm-hmm. and so maybe even that moment in the first movie when Donna seems to imply that her mother is dead. It's a symbolic death. She's oh dead to goodness. me. Oh, my goodness. You've even fixed the... Oh, my God. You can make, you can make anything work in this, uh, in this universe. Um, but so Cher arrives literally by helicopter yes. at the height of the big opening party, yes. right? Um, it's a surprise that she's there because, of course, her granddaughter didn't think she was invited. And what's the first thing she does? Does she, does she cite Senor Sinfuegos Sinf- first uh, there, thing? There, I think there's maybe a little, like, you know, keep them apart for a second until they're, they're in... In eye, in eye line, in each other's eye line. And then as soon as she sees him, we burst into, can you hear the guns, Fernando? Which I think is also one of the, along with Waterloo in the French restaurant, is one of the musical high points yeah. of this movie, I yeah. think. And Cher sings it, from, you know, in a really great way. She's a great singer still. She looks kind of strange, but she, she, I mean, the song sounds great, I thought. It was pointed out, I think possibly also by Glenn Weldon, that she's only three years older than Meryl Streep, whose right. mother she plays, which right. is pretty amazing that she, mm-hmm. A, accepted the part at exactly. all, and B, like she somehow pulls off being the glam, glamma. Yeah, there's there is something amazing about this movie. I mean, just given the cast, I suppose it's just a given but like the amount of star power that is gathered for this silly musical you know this silly film is really incredible and you don't know if they you know backed up the Brinks truck or if it's just a really fun shoot and you get to go to this island I think you your review said at this time it was in Croatia it was actually a Croatian island rather than a Greek island but you know, there's a there's a TV show that I watch called Death in Paradise, which is set on a sort of fictional Caribbean island, and every black actor from Britain gets to go and be on this show. And you, and sometimes like they die in the first few minutes, and you're like, oh, okay, but you still got to go to the Caribbean, right? <laughs> right. It was a junket. Yeah. And the first one feels like that a little bit more than yeah, this one. Yeah, I yeah. think. I mean, this one has, for one thing, the gravitas of the first one to coast on. Right. But it does a little bit of a more professional job of making it seem like they're not just all at camp. I right, mean, it, right. Phyllida Lloyd, who directed the first Mamma Mia, and who, fun fact, is the mother of Emma Thompson, right. kind of crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was criticized for you know being so slapdash in her directorial style that there are a couple of shots that are actually out of focus. I can remember which ones they right. are. She's a great actress, but so not necessarily times. a great director. Yeah, and it had the feeling of uh, she gathered a bunch of people for a party and they were all having fun, and it wasn't yeah. necessarily filmed you know, with the most care. Um, this has this movie, which also has a story credit. It was co-written, or at least part of the script had some pass by Richard Curtis, who right. wrote "Love Actually." Two wedding, four weddings, many weddings and a funeral. funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Two more weddings, I forgot. And so there's a little bit of more like rom-com shaping that, yeah. in a way that we're familiar with this yeah. time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is actually quite well structured. I mean, so, there's a lot so, of parallelism, which is, I always think, a little bit of a crutch, but you no, know, pretty good. 
Did you agree with me, though, that a big flaw of this movie is that it didn't give Colin Firth's Harry a, a romantic partner of any kind or even a hookup? Well, I had forgotten that about that development because, as I said, I haven't seen the movie, the first one, in 10 years. But once you pointed it out, I was ready to go to the barricades because, yes, because, like, I mean, it is a movie that's for women and gay men. And it just seems like a terrible insult not to when you've made one of the characters gay, not to give them a romantic life when every other bugger on the in the film does. Yeah, there's a tiny little suggestion, especially if you stay for the post credits coda, oh. that um that there's someone with a crush on Harry, but it's the young Harry, not the older oh Harry. My goodness. And the older Harry is the one who could take advantage of it because he's already come out. There's this fantastic little moment at the end of the first Mamma Mia when they're all dancing on the dance floor, remember, and the uh the the geyser shoots up because <laughs> there's like a I don't know, the earthquake or something mm. like that. Um and they're all just dancing in this water bursting up from under the earth and Meryl Streep's character says it's Aphrodite you know, who made the, the waters to begin to flow and Colin Firth's character takes his shirt off and starts dancing shirtless with all mm. these young men I mean I got the feeling that he was embarking on this bacchanalian period of his life mm. and we should get to see him live a little bit of, of that I have to say that the idea of him getting together and having like a love scene with his younger self I mean that really suggests that Mamma Mia here we go again, might be the first movie to really grapple with the post-Einsteinian physics. Uh, so wait, wait, I, how does he have a love affair with his younger self? <laughs> well, didn't you say that it was Hugh Skinner who was... Well, um, no, somebody flirts with Hugh Skinner, uh, the guy who was the security uh, guard oh, at I'm the sad. island. I'm yeah. sad. I really thought that... It was, <laughs> that Colin Firth was flirting with Hugh Skinner and that would have been like, oh my God, but you're flirting with your younger That's self. That's really taboo breaking. Yeah, that really is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because maybe that was why they couldn't give him a gay love. So I don't know where where we wrap here because the movie just after Cher's song, I feel like it just sort of trails to well, a Well, there's happy one ending. thing that we haven't mentioned, although if you've seen the, the poster, you kind of are starting I well I should speak for oh myself. my god of I course the to thing wonder, to spoil yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Where, where where's is Meryl, Meryl? Yep. where's Meryl I mean I always ask that in every movie whether she's supposed to be or not <laughs> where's Meryl and then this is Mamma Mia the first one was all about Meryl she's in the center of the poster for this she movie is. so they're selling yeah. it on the strength of her and uh, I think it's it's this is a spoiler special so we'll spoil it but I actually do think if you're talking about this with friends that it's good to to go in not knowing yeah. to what degree she'll appear just to know that she is there hovering somewhere in the background I mean of course I wish there was more Meryl of course I wish her physical body was in more than just one scene at the very end which we'll get to but she I still feel that her presence is big in this movie whether it's the portraits of her everywhere right, right? right, right. people talking about her and bursting into tears when they talk about her or just the mere fact that you know this hotel that's being re reopened kind of was all based on the force of her personality and Lily James who I started off by saying I thought I would be disappointed in is fantastic as yeah, the young Meryl she really is, she really is and she yeah. brings some of that over the top life energy that yeah. Meryl brought to the first one like someone who will use a bed like a trampoline mm -hmm, at age 59 mm -hmm. right, you know right, exactly. so seeing her in her 20s is kind of a fun prelude to that but so let, let's get to Meryl how and when does she appear so as we said um, Sophie realizes that she's pregnant and some after some period, which we've not heard, but I guess about six months, uh, we are transported back to the island and there's going to be a baptism. And um, as she's kind of thinking about, uh, I guess she's just kind of thinking. I mean, I suppose at times like that, you do think about the people who aren't there. Uh, we she, should say we're in the same chapel, that yes. little beautiful rock top chapel where yes. the wedding happened at the yes. end of the first one. Yeah. She kind of sees her mother. It's kind of in a almost as if in a mirror, right? 
Well, she, I think they're about to baptize the baby, yeah. right? I yeah. think she's holding the baby, or yeah. maybe Sky is, but they're standing there, like, by yeah. the baptismal font, ready right. to do right. the thing. And Meryl appears in the doorway of the church. And then she and, and Sophie actually sing a duet together, yes. which was an ABBA song I didn't know. Ditto. And unlike some of the sort of B-level ABBA cuts in this movie, it's a really good song. My Love, My Life, it's right. called. Yes. And uh, man, is it a tearjerker. I it mean, really if it is. has a mirror in the first movie, it's probably the song that Meryl sings when she's getting her ready for the wedding. I don't know if you remember that song, but there's a really sweet moment when she's sort of braiding her hair yeah, and putting yeah. her dress on yeah. and sings this beautiful song about, about her little girl going away. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is something like that. I don't know about you, but I mean, it was it, it was raining on my face. <laughs> it was. I mean, it it was a definitely a different kind of emotion than the, you know, from for me, most of the movie was basically, oh my goodness, this is a great chance to forget about this world that we're in the middle of for two hours totally. and just go to the silly place, and then. This it really was a very touching song, and and as you you know you're you're very right to connect it to that other move that other time in the first movie, because it is very you know there's for all of the lightness and everything it there is a real it actually has things to say about family. I mean not so much with Meryl Streep and Cher, but in terms of the relationship between Donna and Sophie, and you know. I, that that it really is a beautiful mother daughter relationship, and you do have this sense of, you know, con- continuity and what some you know what someone means to you, and it's it really is moving. And then to kind of see her again, it it's absolutely um, yeah, it really works emotionally. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great mother daughter movie. Oh, she's so good. I mean, I think that's why I'm able to. She is the principal reason that I'm able to project all of this ridiculous yeah. emotional meaning onto yeah. the Mamma Mia world. Is that I believe that character Donna, like this weird person who graduated from Oxford and then became a single mother on a Greek island and right. opened an inn, and I believe the whole thing. Mm. And uh, and it's because she's able to to sell it, to sell it in song and in language as well. Yeah. And so as short as that scene is, I think it really anchors the movie and it doesn't feel like you were cheated of Meryl and they just threw you two cents of Meryl at the end to get you into the theater. Yeah. Do you agree? I do. Although in that way that you can never quite let go of a certain part of yourself, like I did long to know this, like the kind of the backstory like I'm really ready for an oral history of the <laughs> Mamma Mia verse like you know how much did they have to pay sure to play Meryl Streep's mother how did they get Meryl back for one song and why wasn't she there for the whole time like just I wanted I do kind of want to know that gossip and that little bit of yeah if only in DVD featurette exactly, form right like exactly. backstage at both of the Mamma Mia's oh my god now I I never buy DVDs I don't know that I ever have but I would buy that if, I, if that was promised yeah, for, just on the for the DVD. commentary track Absolutely. alone yeah so the last song I believe in the movie proper is is Meryl's solo mm-hmm. um I'm not sure I may be missing something in the party after that, but that is essentially the end of the movie, right? The baby is baptized and their new life begins and Meryl Streep has given her blessing as a spectral presence. But just like for the first movie, it's really worth staying for the credits because this cast who's been having so much fun the whole time putting on silly 70s style costumes and singing songs gets to do nothing else for the credit (laughs) sequence. They don't even have to pretend that it's narratively connected to anything. And uh, there's a couple songs, I believe, that are medleyed together at that point. And I can't remember what they all are. All I remember is, you know, the fact that the men are all wearing those 70s Abbott style costumes with like the big deep V. Um, and so I just remember the costumes and and like the 
the mood, but I don't really also can't They trot those scene. guys out, yeah, yeah. In, in style because I think everybody remembers very fondly that they were forced to perform in those kind of flare <laughs> right. pantsuits in right. the first one. Exactly. This time, they all they have to do is essentially appear in the costumes and right. everyone goes right. mad. Exactly, exactly. Um, there's one thing that I was glad to see, but and also, especially after it became clear that they were just going to reprise songs and they weren't going to just like, if it had been in one, it wasn't going to be in two, which was um, Senor Cienfuegos um, introduces his brother uh, to the Christina Baranski character, um, who at that until that point really didn't have a romantic partner. And you sort of get the sense of, oh, there's a spark there. But they didn't show us his face. We basically just saw the very vaguest hint of a white beard and sunglasses. And that felt like a very positive sign for a, a, another sequel <laughs> because they, that's something that they do on television. Like you don't want to have to like pay an actor to hold that part. You don't want to pay to hold him, um, you know, just because who knows when it's when the filming's going to happen. But you just kind of keep it vague like, oh, here's his brother, but don't show him to us so you don't have to pay that actor. So that felt very like, oh, we're going to there's going to be another hard summer where we're going to get another chance to go to a Greek island and sit, leave the cinemas humming. ABBA songs. Oh, if it brings us more Baranski, I am <laughs> all for it. I would also like to know a little bit more about what happened between Julie Walters' character, Rosie, and Bill, yes, Stella yes, Skarsgård, right? Yes. Because they seem to have, they got together at the end of the last movie, but now they're uncomfortable around each other because something's come between them. Yeah. Then they sort of get back together. I mean, hell, let's let's go into that part. Do, do a whole movie about their relationship and what went I wrong. would not complain. <laughs> All right, June. Well, however many Mamma Mia movies there are, I hope that you will come and spoil every one with me. Uh, you know it. And as a little bonus track for our listeners, because my daughter and I have such a history with Mamma Mia, and because she was so touched to be a part of my review of Mamma Mia 2, she requested if she could be a little part of this spoiler. So she has recorded a little bit of her own karaoke track, ABBA, for us, and you'll be hearing that over the credits. So take it away, sweetie. Take it to your talk, tell me what's wrong. All right. Thank you to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like our show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows that we should spoil or any other feedback to share, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today is Danielle Hewitt. For June Thomas, I'm Dana Stevens. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. There is no way you can deny it.